Father, thank you that it's all true. Thank you for loving me that way. I've failed you in so many ways. Thank you for grace and for mercy that are new every morning. To cover sin, to erase shame and guilt, to place us in Christ so that you see us and treat us as if we were as holy and righteous as he is. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Have you had the strange pleasure of meeting someone you only knew on social media in real life and being disappointed by the difference? <laughs> it happens, doesn't it? Social media is a strange beast where people are free to curate their own lives through as many pictures and filters as it takes to present them in the best possible way. Angles make all the difference, I've discovered. Nobody looks good shot from down here. Everybody looks better shot from up here. I was at lunch once, and a young girl was photographing her lunch, and she had a crew with her. Uh, they had two different light sources, and one of them was blocking the sunlight, and it was just, and I thought, only, only in the 21st century are we making such extraordinary efforts to present our best version of ourselves to anybody who cares to look. And I've been thinking about that as I looked at this passage in Luke's gospel. We're back in Luke chapter 12. If you want to open your Bible there, you'll, you'll need your Bible this morning as every morning. We move through books of the Bible, verse by verse, phrase by phrase. On occasion, I've been asked when a difficult passage is coming, are you going to skip that part? <laughs> they, weren't, they weren't kidding. Uh, and I understood why they wondered, but no, we don't, we don't skip parts. And that's the Instagram connection. You see, Instagram and all the other social media platforms give you the privilege of skipping parts of your life in your presentation to other people. So you can look skinny and smart and successful and well-rested all the time. And we now know, and we're working on this, particularly for you parents of, of younger people who were, who were born into that world, we're working on ministries and teaching to present to you to help you navigate those difficult years. We now know from serious social research, it's causing harm to people, the constant comparison of everybody else's life looking amazing and you knowing how difficult yours actually is, is creating psychological harm, particularly to young women. More on that later. Stay tuned. Be attentive. I'll tell you about that when we're ready to present that. But people treat Jesus that way too. Here's what I mean by that. A very good friend of mine who teaches at a, at a nationally ranked Christian university a few years ago was very honest with me. He told me he was reading the Gospels carefully and slowly and repeatedly, I suppose for the first time in his life. And his conclusion was, I'm not sure I like the Jesus I'm hearing about. That's real. Because Jesus has exceedingly hard and sharp edges. 
And if you have an Instagram Christianity, if your main input from Scripture are the verses that people choose to post on social media, you're going to get the warm, loving, compassionate Jesus, and He is real. That's not a caricature. He really is that way. This song that we just sang, which has caused some controversy, as I've explained at other times, uses a really provocative word for the love of God and calling Him reckless. Whatever does it mean? Does God make mistakes? Is He overly lavish? No. But to look at the way He loves sinners, you would think that He is. That's the point of the parable of the prodigal son. Where the father who has been publicly shamed by his wanton, reckless, woman-chasing, wine-guzzling, family-destroying younger son, when he sees him come back in repentance, and remember that, he sees him come back in repentance, he runs to him, and the King James, I believe it says, he fell on his neck. In other words, it's a, not only a bear hug, but a flying, tackling bear hug. And before his son can complete his confession and say, treat me like a slave, no longer your son, he says, give him shoes, give him a ring, give him the robe. And what that means was, make him the guest of honor, give him authority in the family business, and treat him like my son again, because slaves were barefoot. And it's it's extravagant. It appears reckless. Charles Spurgeon said, to look at the cross of Christ, my words, not his, his are better. To look at the cross of Christ, you would think that God loved us more than he loves his son Jesus. And yes, that's what you would take from looking at the cross of Christ. And that Jesus is real. But that's not all that he is. And that's the disillusionment of people you meet in social media, or perhaps you hear on a platform, and then you deal with them in public and private. Oh boy, just please keep keep writing the books, keep keep doing the seminars, because you're a horrible, horrible person. Just keep doing your one skill, which is so useful to the rest of us. Don't talk about anything else. Just talk about your expertise. Ever had that experience? Jesus is a real person with boundaries and limits. And these chapters in the Gospel of Luke, as Jesus turns toward the cross, show him at his most severe, at his sharpest, at his most urgent. That's what my friend was unsettled by. He worked through it. So should you. You should read the Gospels carefully and slowly. You should soak them in. Eight verses, well contemplated, well meditated, are better than four or five chapters that you didn't understand. We're moving through the Gospel of Luke. If you'll give me your email address, I will begin to provide to you in the weekly email a preview of what's coming so that you can read ahead, talk to God in prayer about the questions you have, the tension that you might find in the text. Some texts are so loving, so encompassing, so comforting that you just say to yourself, this is what I've been needing, this is what I hoped was true, and it is. But it's not the entire story. Because God is love, but God is also holy. And God is merciful, but God is also just. He is compassionate and forgiving, but He is also righteous. 
And as Jesus, the Son of God, deals with people and approaches the cross, as we approach Easter, it's helpful to be where we are in the Gospel of Luke after this long journey through it. And I want you to hear Jesus speak to people in Luke chapter 12, verse 49. He's been talking to them about coming judgment. And the reason He has been doing so is because He loves them. Everything He does is motivated by love, including His severe warnings, including His words of judgment. It's all motivated by love because if you see someone headed toward disaster, the most loving thing you can do is shout at them and warn them and get them out of the way. As a renowned atheist once said, an incredibly raw, grainy shot in his home looked like he just got out of bed video. If you truly believe that there was judgment and hell, how much do you have to hate somebody not to tell them? And what occasioned that was a man giving him a copy of a Bible and telling him a word about Jesus on his way in to perform his act. And he said, I don't believe a word of it, but I respect it because he believes it. And I understand that what He is doing for me is loving because He really believes judgment is coming, and He's trying to tell me, how much would you have to hate somebody not to tell them of coming judgment? If you were the kind of, if you had the kind of medical training that would thoroughly persuade you that a friend of yours was gravely ill and would die within two months, and you knew that and they didn't, would you tell them? Of course you would, if you love them. So listen to Jesus, Luke chapter 12, verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I've never seen that verse on Instagram. Let me tell you what you're about to read. You're going to read about Jesus, the great divider. Jesus is so utterly unique that He divides people. He deliberately puts people at a crossroad and makes them choose about Himself. Not about religion, not about tradition, not about their own best efforts. He puts them at a crossroads with Him and makes us choose, do you believe me? Not do you believe in me, that's easy to do. I believe in a wide number of people and things, but I do not entrust my life to them. Jesus is different. Luke 12, verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. What is he talking about? In his Jewish way of speaking, soaked in the Hebrew Scriptures, knowing the Scriptures by heart, he knows and his audience understands that in the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, fire had two principal meanings. It was judgment or purification. And that carries through to today. You can use fire to judge, to punish, to destroy, or you can use it to cleanse something. In this context, he's talking about judgment because he's just been telling them about his soon return to reward or to judge those he finds. 
He is going to bring judgment, in other words. That's what he means by fire. The next verse is almost as mysterious. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. What does he mean by this? Jesus has already been baptized in water by John the Baptist. Just one instance of him taking our place, doing everything well, doing everything to please God. Now he speaks of a future baptism that is still awaiting him, and he says, I am greatly distressed about it. In other words, I'm coming to bring judgment, and I wish it had already started. I'm coming to put fire on the earth, and I wish the match were already lit, because I have a baptism ahead of me, and I find it deeply, deeply distressing. What's he talking about? Well, you have to understand the word baptism, which unfortunately was not translated here. Baptism literally means in Greek to sink or to submerge. It's why we baptize people by putting them underwater. It's literally what the word means. So Jesus is saying, if you read that literally, I have an immersion to be immersed in to be immersed with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. What is he referring to here? He's referring to his coming death on the cross. And it's so, so heavy. See, Jesus went willingly, courageously to the cross. He actually went to meet his executioners. Oftentimes, ordinary men have to be dragged out of the chamber. They go sullenly, they go defiantly, they go cursing the men who will put them to death. Timmy McVeigh famously died quoting a poem calling himself the captain of his own destiny. It was one last insult to a nation, not Jesus. All he does on the night of his arrest is exercise his sovereign power to spare his disciples' arrest. He actually speaks on their behalf and exercises the power of God so that they may make their cowardly escape, and he goes willingly, greeted by the traitor's kiss and calling Judas, even at that moment, a friend, and says not a word in his defense, and says to Pilate things like this, you can only judge me because you have been given authority to do so. In other words, I'm still in charge. I am submitting to this. And the reason he's submitting to it is because he's going to die on our behalf. In other words, in these two verses, where, which may, at a casual reading, may not make sense to you, hence the value of slowing down, reading, and studying. And this week, I'll send you some basic Bible resources so that you can study along on your own. The most important thing you can learn to do with the Word of God is feed yourself. I'm prayerfully, gratefully doing it on Sunday mornings. We do it in small groups. We have many small groups that follow the sermon series and go deeper into the text that I'm preaching. But your daily encounter with Jesus in dealing with him as he is, not as Instagram or some other filter imagines him to be, is the most valuable thing you can do with your week. And in just two verses, Jesus is telling you something extraordinary about himself, that he is, first of all, bringing judgment And then that he has this suffering to undergo, and this makes Jesus unique. Here's how C.S. Lewis, the wonderful professor from Oxford and Cambridge who once did not believe and became in the 20th century one of the greatest 
exponents and defenders of the Christian faith, here's C.S. Lewis's take on Jesus. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And in just two verses, you've seen why Lewis came to believe that. An ordinary person does not speak to crowds and disciples to say, I'm here to bring judgment to the whole earth. I'm going to light a fire, and I wish I already had. But because I know that judgment is coming, I am going to be immersed in something, and it distresses me deeply. What distressed Jesus is cross. Because not only, first of all, not only will he bring judgment beautifully, blessedly, wonderfully, he's going to cover sin by his own suffering and death. In other words, because Jesus knows that judgment is coming and he is actually the one who is going to bring it, he is going to absorb it first so that all that take refuge behind him and in him may be spared. That's the gospel. If it's just God loves you just as you are and requires nothing of you, that's false teaching. Your conscience tells you better than that. You don't accept yourself the way you are. At least I hope you don't. The only people I've truly known to ex apparently, I don't believe anybody actually does, but that seemingly accept themselves just as they are are dangerous narcissists and sociopaths. Who I think, and I've talked to a therapist about this, actually down deeper below the surface are actually filled with such raging insecurity and self-loathing that it's all an act and that's how they deal. You don't accept yourself the way you are. Every day you want to do better. Your conscience accuses you and sometimes excuses you, as Paul explains elsewhere in the Bible. Your conscience troubles you and rewards you all day long. The God in whose image you are made knows that you were made and made you to be holy and right and loving and good and faithful and compassionate and forgiving and righteous and just, and you're not. And that attracts the righteous indignation of the God who made everyone to love him and enjoy him and then watched his own creation seek their own individual version of hell and judgment. And Jesus says, I'm here to wrap all of that up, but before I do, I will be immersed in suffering. I will be immersed in death. I will suffer death to cover your sin and spare you death. That's the good news of Jesus. 
And it is so sharp, so unique, so divisive that it allows no options for anyone to honestly cram Jesus into a category where he gets along with everybody else. He doesn't. He just doesn't. You have to excise, you have to cut off a great deal of who he is and what he actually said to get comfortable with that Jesus. That's why my professor friend was struggling. For the first time in his life, he was reading verses like Luke 12, 49 and 50 and saying to himself, wow, really? I'm here to bring fire on the whole earth? It's pretty heavy. It certainly is. Now, listen to him make his point. Having told people who he is, he's going to throw down three different challenges, all aimed in the same direction, to trust him, to give our lives to him. Verse 50, 51, do you think that I have come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. What's the division? He is. In a household of five, Jesus says, there will be homes I split right down the middle. Because no one can be this radical and this clear. Nobody who's really listening to Jesus can just sit there and, eh, whatever. That's, Lewis says, that's the one thing you can't do. He didn't leave that option to you. And these piercing words of Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace, Jesus, who is love, and that is also true, bringing division into homes, you see that every day. Did you know the 20th century was the bloodiest century in terms of Christian persecution? More Christians were murdered in the 20th century than in all the centuries combined since Jesus came. That's a function of population. We saw it in Mexico. We were up in northern Mexico where persecution is not that sharp. But we knew of a young man, for instance, who on the night of his baptism returned to his home and found all of his belongings carefully packed on the street with a message, don't come in, you're done. Don't know where you're going to sleep, not our problem. That's real. It's causing pain in some of your homes because you love the Lord Jesus and your spouse, your children do not. They barely put up with him. They barely put up with you when you bring up the subject. Here's Jesus telling you, that's what I do. I'm so real, I'm so clear, I'm so honest that people are going to split up and take sides. I'm going to divide. What's he telling us here? Verse 54. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west... That would be the Mediterranean for them. You say at once, a showering coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, that's the desert for them, riverside for us, okay? <laughs> Eastern wind for us. What do we call those terrible winds? Santa Ana's. When you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat, and it happens. In other words, 
You can read the wind, and if it's coming from the west, you say, oh, good, we're going to get some rain. If it starts kicking up from the south, you say, batten down the hatches, it's going to get 30 degrees hotter all of a sudden. You can read the weather, Jesus says. What's his point? This is the uncomfortable Jesus. You ready? You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Yikes. What's he saying? You can read the weather. You can't read me. You've been going to synagogue your entire lives. You've been reading the scriptures God gave us for generations, saying that one born of a virgin would come and that he would be righteous and that he would save. And you can't figure it out. I'm right here. You can read the weather but not the times. You can't see what God is doing. His first challenge is from Jesus, understand who I am and what God has done by sending me, and that challenge still stands. It still divides homes. It still puts tension in marriages, especially if those marriages are between an unbeliever and someone who is serious about following Jesus in their faith. It still divides siblings. Jesus is saying, don't, and he calls them hypocrites. Notice that. He doesn't say you're ignorant. He's saying you pretend that you can't see what God is doing here. You pretend one thing and you act in another. And the call from Jesus until he returns and brings judgment and salvation, his call to human beings is understand who I am and understand what God the Father has done by sending me. And he gives them another word picture because he's a masterful communicator. Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. And I actually learned something this week. It's rare, but it happens. And I was so grateful for it. Honestly, I never quite knew what to do with this little passage because it, it seems like Jesus is suddenly giving legal advice, doesn't it? And that, that, that just can't be. There's no way he's been talking about fire, judgment, hypocrisy, the inability to see what God has done, him bringing fire on the earth, facing his own cross, being immersed in suffering and death, and suddenly, by the way, saying, hey, you know, it's easier if you settle, because once you get into court, who knows what happens. That still might be great advice, depending on the situation, but you have to read that in context, and the, for the first time in my life, I did. And I'm telling you this to tell you a couple things. Pray for me because I don't know everything, not by a long shot. I'm learning every week as I prepare to teach you the Bible. And also be encouraged that the whole point of walking along with Jesus is you learn, you grow, you change, you correct your thinking to make it, bring it in line with His. That's how it works. Just keep moving forward. What's he talking about here? Well, he's talking about something that gratefully no longer exists in our world. He's talking about debtor's prison. 
And if you had a debt you could not pay in that ancient world, they might put you in debtor's prison and they might do something a little extra. They might torture you while you're in there as pressure on your family to do whatever they had to do, maybe even sell themselves into slavery to get you out. Aren't you glad they don't do that anymore? I mean, the worst thing that's going to happen to you probably is that Visa is just going to keep on calling and saying, where's our money? They're not going to send a guy around to put you in a dungeon. What's Jesus talking about? How does this fit the context? He's saying you have a debt with God, and you better make peace with God while you still have time. When you sin, you make God, this is heavy. When you sin, you make God your adversary. Please understand that. When you ignore the creator of all of life, so powerful that the Bible poetically speaks as the clouds above us, as the dust of his feet. Think about that image. The clouds above us, it's not literal, it's poetic, but to give you a sense of the grandeur and the majesty of God, when the storm clouds roll in, it's as if the Father were walking across the universe but he's not. He's even bigger than that. He's in all places. He makes people in his image. He keeps this amazing created universe that gives so much evidence of its design. There are so many physical factors in the universe that had to be dialed in at the exact point where they are or life would be impossible where we live. All of those things are set in place by a God so impossibly majestic that it's not that he defies description. You can describe him. He has told you a great deal about himself in his word. Your conscience is continually pointing back to him, but he's so magnificent that you can never begin to exhaust all that he is. And when you ignore him and you say to him, and this is the nature of sin, I know better than you. You make him your adversary, and you make the righteous judge of the earth put charges against you. And Jesus is saying to people who are listening, that God is real. He is acting through me. I am his actual son. Please make peace with him while you still have time, because once his judgment comes upon you, you'll never get out of it. Clear enough? He said more. I mean, once I saw this, it completely blew me away. Here's something from the headlines. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. What in the world is this? Pilate. That cowardly monster had killed some Jews while they worshipped. And he made their blood run along with the blood of their sacrifices. That's heavy. You know what that is? That is state-sponsored, religiously-based terrorism. you imagine living in a world like that? Some people do. You imagine if federal agents stormed this room and killed a few of us just because we were here? Would you come back next week? 
That's Pilate bearing down with the heavy boot of Rome, saying, hey, we're in charge. You can do your little things. You can have your little sacrifices. You can say your little prayers. Don't forget who's in charge here. We are. And Jesus is talking about fire and judgment, and some people say, hey, Pilate killed some of us while we were at worship. What would you expect Jesus to say? Be honest, don't read ahead. Don't cheat. You're in church, for goodness sakes. Don't cheat. What would you expect Jesus to say? That's terrible. God's going to get them too, right? Why don't you hear what he said instead? He answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. <laughs> See, the very first thing that people do when there is great moral evil or great natural evil in the world, in other words, a natural storm comes along and kills people, or there is great moral evil, a monster storms a place and starts murdering people, someone will try to make sense of it by saying something like, well, maybe they were extra bad. There's a hurricane a few years ago, and a pastor I deeply respect rushed to the mic to say that the people who were killed had been extra bad, and that's why the hurricane came. And I, I just couldn't make sense of it because of what Jesus says here. He doesn't even stop and say that's terrible. Obviously, that's terrible. Those are his fellow Jews. That is worship he might have been participating in if it was lawful, if it was in the law of Moses. But he doesn't say there's nothing extra bad about them. You're all going to die the same way unless you repent. Repent means to make a U-turn. In other words, unless you come back and deal with me and accept me and trust me and give up on yourselves and love me, you're all going to die in some way. In fact, he adds to it. Here's the natural evil. Verse 4, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Siloam is a place you can visit in Israel today. There was a tower there, the engineering fail, failed, the tower fell over and killed 18 people. And Jesus says, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, here's his point in both stories, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Make peace with God while you still have time. Some of you are wondering, why did I come to church? My life is hard enough. I I'll tell you why. Because this is real. And God forbid anyone give you sugary, sweet comfort that doesn't prepare you for the moment of what Jesus is talking about here, your own death. Are you aware of your own mortality? The power of denial is a really, really, really amazing thing. I once talked to a lady, I'm sure I've told you. She was in her mid-90s. She was telling me about her friend who was over 100. And she said it was, it was sad and funny at the same time. She said, I just don't understand why these things have to happen. Talking about her own friend's imminent death. 
And I thought, well, honey, what, what did you think? Did you, did you think you were immortal? Your friend was? We're all dying, folks. Be ready. See, if the best the Bible does for you is to try to prepare you for what has been called your best life now, you'll miss Jesus altogether. May I suggest to you that Jesus did not have his best life here and now among us? He was good, he was righteous, he was loving, he was faithful, he did everything well. And for his trouble, they killed him. You know why he did that? Because he loves you. Because he wants to take on himself all the shame, all the guilt, all the things you can't stand and can't change about yourself. He wants to take those things upon himself and he is using this severe language not to harm you, but perhaps to hurt you into awareness, into coming awake, to understand that Jesus is utterly unique. There is absolutely no one like him and he is begging you through stories and images and current events that he's explaining to you to make peace with God while you still have time. And then he told a final story and this was a national warning to Israel. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree and Israel, the Israelites listening would have readily understood that as a historic symbol of the nation of Israel. Perhaps they would have remembered passages like Micah 7. He told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, the gardener in other words, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, the gardener said, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure, fertilize it. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. And he leaves it right there. What's the point of that parable? This, be fruitful while God is patient with you. God had given Israel as a light to the nations. Had they been a light to the nations? No. They had behaved like the nations. He is saying to them nationally, you should consider carefully God's patience that it is well past time when you should have produced fruit. It's been three years. Anybody who plants something that gives annually should Expect something year after year. It's been three years now. Nothing is happening. And the gardener is likely to think, huh, got a dud. Don't know what's wrong with this one, but it's not going to be in my garden. It's taking up useful land where I could have fruit in this little corner. He says, cut it down. And the gardener patiently says, give it one more year. Let me work with it and come back in a year. And if you don't have fruit, then you can cut it down. And did you notice he cuts the story off right there? What's the point? To invite Israel to consider what they're going to do. What did they do? Within about three and a half decades, Rome came and did not leave a stone upon a stone in Jerusalem. They destroyed them and scattered them, a scattering that continues to this day. One of the most miraculous things in modern history is the reconstitution of Israel in their ancestral homeland. 
because judgment fell on them that took nearly 2,000 years for them to recover from in any sense nationally. That's a national warning. It's an individual warning too. If I apply that to myself, I ask myself, in view of what Jesus did for me, dying for my sins, hiding me behind his cross so that the judgment fell on him rather than on me, so that in turn, rather than give me judgment, he can treat me with extravagant love that seems reckless, overly generous, overly loving, far too trusting in return instead of his judgment. What am I doing with all of that? Jesus said that fruit was the real sign in the Gospel of Matthew, he told us this, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And if there's, a, if there's a sad sign among us in contemporary Christianity, it's that people name Christ and do not produce fruit that looks like Christ and comfort themselves all the way to the grave that they know Him because they can name Him. But they are nothing like Him. See, the whole point of fruitfulness is that Whatever the tree is, it will eventually produce after its kind. If I took you up to the apple orchards, thank God my wife has never been into that, has never dragged me off to the apple orchards to wander through the apple orchards and pay a ridiculous amount of money to do labor that half of my family did to keep themselves alive. But can I ever convince you that the apple orchards were actually orange groves? You'd say, you're crazy, those are apples. No, they're not, they're oranges. No, dude, look, it's an apple. It's an apple tree. This is Jesus' exact warning. Some people who are professing Christ produce nothing but thorns and briars their whole life, and all they say is, I know Jesus. Here's the acid test. Jesus said, you will recognize them by their fruits. So the call from Jesus Christ repeated in the book of Hebrews, not long after his death, taken from the Old Testament, still rings out today. Here it is, church. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Please, listen, I'm literally pleading with you. I'm not ashamed to beg. I'm really not. If you've been coming to this church thinking that it'll make your life better and you get some kind of juice out of it, and you feel better on Monday, and you feel better motivated, and you're a slightly better worker, and a marginally better parent or friend or whatever, and that's all this has been to you, please understand, you are missing the point who is Jesus Christ. Please turn away from your sin and entrust yourself to Him. Confess yourself a sinner in the sight of God and take refuge behind the cross of Christ. Let His baptism, His immersion into death and suffering cover your sin, and He'll save you. He did it for me. He did it for many of us. And the transformation I have witnessed, one of the great privileges of being a pastor is it is your job literally to watch out for people and see the change. So that you meet someone who finally comes to faith in Christ or who had a saving faith but had never truly loved Him and sought Him with any intentionality, but they begin to do so and they look so much more like Jesus a year later. And the personal privilege is I get to see that in all kinds of people, men and women, boys and girls, all ages. I get to see seniors finishing well and putting themselves 
far behind in the interest that they should reasonably expect to have of living the American dream. They continue serving in spite of pain. They continue giving even in the light of the fact that they no longer have an income. It's the most beautiful thing in the world. I see young people radically living out a life that is so countercultural, so Jesus-focused, so Jesus-shaped that I know it's making trouble for them in their high schools because they come across as hateful simply because they love Jesus and they say what he said. He's the only way to the Father. And it's beautiful. Here's the call. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts because you get used to hardening your heart. And you no longer hear his voice. And then the judgment comes. And I would do practically anything to spare you that encounter with a God that holy. I would invite you to instead consider that Jesus is the great divider. And he divides people. And I would urge you and beg you to make sure you get on his side. Let's pray. After an effort to be that clear, I just have to ask you, friends, this is rare, but I'm going to be really specific. If this morning you have come to the realization given by God that you are not on the side of Jesus, you've gone to church, you've done all kinds of things, you've made efforts to read your Bible, but you are not utterly convinced that He has covered your sins. You're not really sure that He has taken judgment for you. You're not completely sure you're at peace with God. You're not really sure that you love Him with all your heart. You're following His example. You're following His voice, His obedience. I'm going to invite you this morning to take His side by turning away from your sins and asking Him to save you. This is really old-fashioned, but perhaps it should be. Is there anybody here in that condition who has that need? If there is, could I just ask you to raise your hand and put it back down? I'd like to pray for you this morning. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? No pressure, I'm just asking. I think it'd be ignorant on my part to be that specific, that personal, and then not ask you to make a commitment to decide not to do with my sermon, with this church. That's not what it's about. I'm talking to you about Jesus. Anybody else? Yes, thank you, ma'am. Thank you. If you're sincere, God knows your heart. You don't answer to me. I'm just the messenger. Please understand that. I'm just the messenger. All I've done is read a portion of Jesus' words and explain them to you, getting past the images and the language so that you can understand what he said so long ago. But if you truly desire to follow him, I'm going to invite you to pray to him right now in your own words and tell him, Jesus, I understand and I'm sorry. I'm a sinner. I deserve your judgment. But I'm asking you to save me instead. Save me, forgive me. Take my sin upon you and give me your righteousness instead. Give me a home in heaven. Teach me day by day by love you, to love you and follow you. 
There's no magic words. There's no ritual. There's a transfer of personal trust from yourself to Him. And if you trust Him, He will save. You stop loving sin. You start loving Him. You give up on yourself. You start trusting Him. He'll save you. He's promised to do so. He said, if anyone comes to me, I will by no means cast him out. And if you've done that this morning, or if you have questions about it, because I understand it's a process. The average person hears the good news of Jesus double-digit times before they ever trust Him. If you're struggling, if you have questions, you've got a whole culture pushing against you, telling you this can't possibly be true. I'd love to engage that conversation. I won't give you my opinions. I'll just keep pushing you back to Him. I'll put His words in front of you. But if you've made that commitment this morning or you have questions, you're on your way to it, I'm going to ask you to do one more favor. As I pray, I'm going to ask you to take the card out of your bulletin, fill it out, and when the offering basket comes by, just put it in. Lord Jesus, thank you for these who have possibly identified their need and their desire to come to you for salvation. Thank you. Give them the reassurance. I remember that day well for myself and in countless others, Lord, that were so, some were very happy, some were very sad, but all people of all ages and kinds came to you and found you to be a great, wonderful, sufficient, loving Savior. For anyone, Lord, who has doubt, move them past fear of rejection or what other people would think. Move them fully on to you, trusting you, so that today they may truly be saved. And Lord, I pray also that they would do something that takes a little courage and then let us know that they've done that this morning. Not because it'll make it better or complete it, just so that we can know and help them grow. Pray for them. Teach them how to begin to take their first steps with you. And this offering, Lord, this is for many a very serious commitment of trust. When we decide to give, we put into practice what we really believe about you, whether you really will provide, whether being generous for your kingdom, for your gospel is actually worth it. So bless those, Lord, who give, provide for those who want to and cannot. Teach us all to love and trust you. In Christ's name, amen.